Well, good morning. What a joy it is for us to be with you, to worship the Lord and share from God's word. I want to say very special thanks to Terry and Don. Ever since we met them 10 years ago, uh, we have become family. They have been to India several times. Two of their children have been with us in India. And uh, so, yes, I also want to put a plug to that vision trip. Come to India. I told the first service, if you come, we'll give you the best chicken curry in the world. <laughs> and we'll take care of you. We do have a nice guest house in the campus of the seminary. And, uh, I, you know, it's, it's fairly comfortable. It, it has good bathrooms. <laughs> That's one of the biggest problems in India, you know. <laughs> one, of, one of our famous movie actresses came to New York a few years ago and some news reporter asked some question and asked her, you know, can you tell us what is difficult in India? And she immediately, without batting an eye, said, we have three terrible T's. Three terrible T's? What does that mean? You know, because India is famous for tea. And so the reporter thought she was talking about tea. But she said, no, 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 tea. She said, toilets, transportation, and telephone. All these three are terrible in India. That is true, that is true. But in, in our campus, we do. Because my wife uh, took the leadership in building the guest house. And having lived in America a number of years, we know how fussy you are all about your bathrooms. <laughs> so, well, well, I just want to say thank you to Pastor Tommy and Pastor Eric and Pastor Luke and all the elders, uh, and especially to Terry and Don for introducing us to this congregation. Um, we are College Park. We met College Park in 2007 and became partners with them, and through them, got to know your congregation. So thank you, thank you, thank you for praying for us and for helping us. We are ever grateful. Let me quickly introduce ourselves and talk about the work in India, and at the same time, share from God's word, because you came to hear the God's, God's word, not our story, because that's the most important, right? Well, Leela and I, would you stand just for a minute? She... she, she she, we, we grew up together in the same village, next door neighbors. Now our village had no electricity, no paved roads, and we studied with kerosene lamp. Anybody know what kerosene lamp is? <laughs> uh, so it, it looks like maybe 17th century there, but it was the 20th century, but now it is 21st century. Lila was born and raised in a pastor's home. I was born and raised in a school teacher. My father was a school teacher. Both Christian homes. We are part of a community of believers who are known as St. Thomas Christians. Have any of you heard of us? Yeah, some of you have heard of us. Tradition is that St. Thomas, one of the 12, commonly we call him Doubting Thomas. In my opinion, that's very unfair because everybody doubted. He was bold enough to say his doubt, that's all. <laughs> he came to India in 52, according to tradition. Not direct evidence, but very strong. Even Eusebius, the early church historian, has recorded that in his history. And he preached and established a number of congregations in the southwest tip of India, and then he was killed 
by the spear of a Brahmin Hindu. That's a strong tradition. But our community is so strong in our faith in that. And we call ourselves St. Thomas Christians. Though born and raised in such a community, I did not know Jesus as my personal savior until I was 19. I was working towards becoming a lawyer. My ambition was to become a lawyer and enter politics. Aren't you glad I didn't become a politician? <laughs> I am glad. See, India got independence. I'm the first, we are the first free generation of Indians. We got independence only in 1947. And therefore, we are very conscious of that. And that's the reason I was attracted to politics. Well, anyway, the Lord called me to preach the gospel. We both completed our university education. Leela became a school teacher in Kathmandu, Nepal. I became a professor of English down in Kerala, our home state, South India. But the call was to preach the gospel. So the Lord, after a year of teaching, I love teaching. I really love teaching. I love teaching Shakespeare and Milton and all those wonderful, great literature. After a year, I resigned. In the meantime, we got engaged. And then the Lord opened a way for us to come to Minneapolis of all places. Can you imagine that? Born and raised in southern India where we have three seasons, hot, hotter, and hottest. <laughs> and they ended up in Minneapolis of all places. We got married in St. Paul, Minnesota, but it was way too cold. So we moved to Southern California. Uh, the first opportunity we got. Our children were born there and raised there. But the call, the call was real, which happened in 1967. You see, once the Lord calls you, he never lets you go. He's a gracious God. Remember that prophet by the name Jonah? Do you remember him? He had a call. His call was to Nineveh, a city called Nineveh, which is in the east. What did Jonah do? He went west, just like we did. <laughs> we went west. <laughs> so once you get the call, God never lets you go. I love Ray Stetman. Um, some of you may have read his works. He has written uh, about Jonah. And this is how Ray, Pastor Ray Stetman has said about Jonah. God loved Jonah so much, he gave him a veil of an experience. I like that. <laughs> I like that. He gave him a veil of an experience and brought him back to Nineveh. Well, thank God. God didn't need to give us a veil of an experience. He gave us grace to leave our jobs in Southern California and go to North India. We are from South India. North India is largely unreached by the gospel. So in 1986, I resigned uh, my job, my work, wife worked for a little longer because our children were very small, born and raised in California. And that's a story I want to share. But I want to share that by studying the word of God with you today. The text that is already read is the text that the Lord used to remind us of our call to go to North India. Matthew 9, 35 to 38. 35 reads like this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom of, kingdom of God, and healing every disease 
and sickness. If you look at 4.23, we don't have time, so we won't do that. You will see it is almost an identical. It's almost like two bookends Matthew uses, saying first in 4.23 and saying the same thing in 9.35. If you look at 4.23, he adds one specific word there, Galilee. So geographical location is governed, where Jesus did what he did. And he did three things according to the text. He taught, he preached, and he healed. I just put, in case you're curious about the Koine Greek words, from which a lot of English words come. I just put that to show that. If you know that, you know, all of you know all the English words that have come from those Greek words. But he spent most of his time teaching. That's why Matthew puts it first. He taught. Second, he preached and he healed. Often we put more focus on his healings and miracles, which are very important. We still experience that. We have experienced amazing miracles in North India. And that is still a valid point, but our faith is not based on miracles because miracles do happen in Hindu temples. Miracles do happen in Muslim mosques. Well, all the miracles Moses did were repeated by the magicians of Egypt. So the basis of our faith is not miracles. Basis of our faith is the word of God. The foundation is this. And I believe that's why Jesus spent most of his time teaching and preaching, though miracles are important. Well, why what motivated Jesus? 936 tells us what motivated him. Now I put two words in red there. First word is saw. He saw the crowds. King James uses the word multitudes. Where did he see them? Well, the context is already given in 935. In the synagogues. And if you know anything about Jewish synagogues, which is church, Old Testament church, you know men always were on one side and women were always on the other side. They didn't mix, even husband and wife, they didn't sit together, just like we do in India today, even now. In city churches in India it is changing, but in rural churches, Men will be on one side, women on the other side. And that's where Jesus ministered. And, and when he taught, did you know when a rabbi taught, all the people stood up? Did you know that? Pastor Tommy, I'm praying that we will bring those days back. So that rabbi can sit down, pastor can sit down, and people have to stand up. It's unfair for the pastors to stand up and all of you to sit. Well, it will prevent you from falling asleep. Well, that's what Jesus, he was looking out and he saw men standing on one side, women standing on the other side. But see how he sees them? Two words. Harassed and helpless is the NIV translation. And if you will just look up different English translation. Anybody remember how it is translated in King James? 
fainted and scattered abroad. Fainted and scattered abroad. Uh, other translations have very graphic expression. I, I didn't put up that slide. New American Standard has distressed and weak, dispirited, sorry, distressed and dispirited. New English Bible has injured and weak, injured and weak. If I had time, I would take you through those two words, very powerful words. The first word is eskelmenoi in the Koine Greek, from which we get our English word skin. Our word skin comes from that Greek word used there, which is translated harassed or fainted. Well, there was nobody fainted in the auditorium there. They were all standing. Are you with me so far? But Jesus saw them as fainted, as kalmanoi. It's a picture. William Barclay, the New Testament commentator, uh, says that one word paints a whole picture. That's the beauty of Koine Greek. It can. By the way, this is a little aside. I have three hours, right? <laughs> Why did God use Koine Greek to write New Testament? Did you know Koine Greek was the English of first century? Why am I saying English of first century? Today, if you want to be an international air traffic controller, you have to know English. Did you know that? You're blessed. You're blessed. We had to learn it. You know, we started learning it in fifth grade, MAT, MAT, SAT, SAT, RAT, RAT. Would you bless? See, Koine Greek was the international language of first century. The Holy Spirit chose this language to declare one thing, that this message is for all. We don't have a holy language in the Christian faith, even though the church tried to make Latin the holy language. We don't have a holy language. If we had a holy language, it should have been Hebrew. It should have, New Testament should have been written in Hebrew. But no, it was written Koine Greek because it was the world language. I'll tell you another really deep truth. And I hope you'll remember it. And next time when I come, I can quiz you on this. Christianity is the only religion whose primary documents, listen carefully, I'm saying something very, very important. Christianity is the only religion whose primary documents are not written in the founder's language. Did you get it? I mean, we can call Jesus the founder because Hebrews call him the founder of our faith. His mother tongue was Aramaic. But the primary documents were not written. In, you take all the other religions of the world, the primary documents of their faith are written in the language of its founder, Islam. Founder's language, Arabic. Hinduism, the founder's language, Sanskrit. Buddhism, Jainism, no exception. Saurashtrianism, no exception to this rule except the gospel. Why is it? Because this must be proclaimed to all. 
That's why the universal language was chosen. And what a powerful language. Oh, I'm going distracted. That's not my topic at all. But I must share with you this powerful picture, Eskel Manoi. It is the picture of a flock of sheep taken captive by an evil creature. One Greek word can paint that picture. This evil creature is killing the sheep one by one. Not slitting their throats, but skinning them alive. That's what Jesus saw. Skinning them alive. That's what sin does to people. Sin is so attractive at beginning. But once you get hooked, sin destroys you. The wages of sin is death, eternal death. We must tell this to all. Sin destroys. Sin comes disguised as pleasure. In the United States alone in 2020, over 93,000 Young people below the age of 21 died of drug overdose in the United States alone. How is drugs pushed as fun, as enlightening, as great? But it destroys. Well, that's not my topic, but that's what Jesus saw. The second word is equally powerful, helpless. I wish I had time to elaborate on it. I won't do that. I'll do that next time if you invite me back. But look at the response of Jesus when he saw the reality of the condition of God's people. He could have condemned them. He could have told them, you are in this mess because you didn't listen to me. Because he sent them prophets. He sent them Moses, he had given them the word of God. These, these are not people who didn't know God. These are people who had the revelation of God. But he doesn't condemn them. Instead, he has compassion on them. These are people who are sheep without shepherd. That's how he sees them. Which is an expression taken from Numbers chapter 27. It's not Jesus' phrase. It is the phrase of Moses. In Numbers chapter 27, we read these words. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in. So the Lord's people will not be like sheep without shepherd. How long ago did Moses live from the time of Jesus? Approximately 1,500 years before Jesus. 1,500 years before Jesus, the man of God, Moses, prayed, O Lord, let not my people become like a people without sheep, without shepherd. But that's precisely how the Lord sees them. Even though they had the word, even though they had the temple, even though they had the prophets. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, having the Bible at home will not benefit us unless we apply it into our life, unless we obey the word of God. The people of God of the old covenant had the word, but they did not obey the word. As a result, they were mercilessly being destroyed by the evil one. Seeing that, Jesus has compassion on them. I love that word. I love to teach on that word. It's a unique word found in the New Testament only 12 times. The last, that word is 
there projected for you. It's a little long word, almost like our last name. Splangnitsamai, difficult word from which we get our English word spleen. The Greek people believed spleen is the innermost organ of a human. So they built it on that. Found only 12 times. And look at that last line. I love that. That word is found in the entire New Testament, either only about Jesus or in his mouth. What I mean is some of the stories he tells. For example, that word is found in the story of Good Samaritan. What motivated the Samaritan to stop and help his enemy, Jew, who had fallen into trouble, is this compassion. Let me take you to one passage. I wish I had time to take you to all 12 passages, but no time, so we'll look at one to understand this word. This is an important word to understand, in my opinion. This word is found in Mark 1, 40 and 41, where the story of a leper coming to Christ is given. Have you seen a leper? If you come to India, you will still see them. Leprosy is still there, even though it is slowly being eradicated. Uh, we have two congregations of lepers started by us, started by our graduates, one by one of our professors and one by one of our graduates. So I have had the opportunity to baptize several of them. Ordinarily people won't touch a leper. Why? Because a leper is disfigured. His nose will be gone, his toes will be gone, his fingers will be gone. It's such a disease that it eats away. And in the time of Jesus, they were ostracized. They were outcasts. They were untouchables. Leviticus chapter 13 gives detailed rules concerning how a leper can behave in public. He or she couldn't walk down the street with other people. They had to shout, unclean, unclean. They had to wear particular kind of clothes. And they were totally, completely outside of the society, outside of the community. If you ever see the movie Ben-Hur, it is a detailed treatment of leprosy. If you haven't seen it, I recommend you that. It's a good movie. So a leper came. Some translations have a leper came near Jesus. No, 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 no. A leper could not come near. In the original, the word near is not there. Could not come near. He had to stand at a particular distance prescribed by the rabbis. And standing there, he shouts to Jesus and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't say you can heal me. He says you can make me clean. That means in his own mind, he was unclean. He was an untouchable. Jesus could have spoken a word and made him clean. But Jesus doesn't do that. Look what it says. He had compassion on him. Splangdinsamai is the word. And look what he does. He violates the law of Moses. Law of Moses says, don't touch a leper. But my Jesus has compassion. This is what Splangnitsamai does. If you look up all the 12 places, with the exception of Matthew 9, you will see either Jesus or the character in the story does something like this. He touches him. And the moment Jesus touches him, and I believe in my eyes, I see it, not Jesus touching him, something like dirty, you know. In, in our language, we have a word, chichi, you know. No, no, no. I believe he hugged him. That's what I believe. He hugged him. And the moment Jesus hugged him, he becomes clean. 
Do you know what happened to Jesus? According to rabbinical customs, Jesus became unclean. The moment you touch a leper, you become unclean. So there was a transfer that took place. The uncleanness of the leper came upon Jesus. And the righteousness of Jesus, the cleanness of Jesus was transferred to the leper. That's what happens to the cross. That's what we sang about today. That we owe it all to the cross. This is the beauty of the gospel. All the other religions, no exception, all the other religions teach that we have to make ourselves clean before we come to God. In India, we use the word karma, which has now become an American word. Karma. All of you heard it. You have to earn enough good karma so you can escape the cycle of birth and death and have salvation or moksha. But gospel says, come as you are with all your filth and Jesus will accept you. And I had that privilege way back in 1967. Come to him with all my filth and I was filthy. But he touched me. He hugged me. He made me whole. Not because I'm good, I'm not good, but because he is good. Paul expresses this theologically in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Profound scripture, God made him, him who? Jesus. God made his son, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. Not a sinner, but sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is what happens at the cross. This is what happens. Our sin is transferred to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And his righteousness is transferred to us. Have you experienced that? Can you say with confidence this morning, yes, I am righteous, I am clean. Not because I am good, but because he is good. Have you done that? If you haven't done it, please call on him right now. Because none of us is good enough. None of us, even the purest among us, is filthy in his sight. But if we will come to him, he will transfer his righteousness. Because that's what he did on the cross. If you haven't done it, please, what are you going to lose by giving Jesus a chance? cannot lose anything. When I talk to my good friends in India who believes in karma, who believes in reincarnation, a, a good Hindu and most of them very good people, they believe that a living being, whether human or animal, because in the Hindu view all are the same, could go around the cycle of birth and death 888,000 times. Could go potentially until that living creature, living being earns enough good karma to outweigh all the bad karma, only then they can escape the cycle of birth and death. That's the Hindu view of salvation. 888,000 times. There is no certainty that anyone can escape that. But the cross of Jesus says, come to me, I'll make you whole. I will heal you. I will make you clean. That's what Splangnitsamai does. That's what compassion does. That's what 
reincarnation death. That's why Jesus became a human. The holy God becoming a man. I told you this word occurs 12 times in the New Testament. And if we had time, we'll go through all of them, but we don't have time. Everywhere except in Matthew 9, either Jesus or the character in, his, in the story he tells. Forgive me for repeating it. It is very important. Does something to change the situation. Except in Matthew 9. Here. Look what he does. He turns. To his. Disciples. Who are they? Who are they? Who are they? Are you sure? If that divine transfer has taken place, then you are a disciple. Let me say that again. If you have called on the name of Jesus and are sure that you are born again, then you are a disciple is the term that is most often used in the New Testament to describe what today we call Christians. Well, the term Christian has lost its meaning today. You know, there are a lot of people who they say they are Christians but are not walking with the Lord. And I hope you are not one of those. I hope you are a disciple. I hope true transfer of righteousness has happened. And that cannot happen by anything we do. That can happen only by grace. That can happen only by faith. And if it has happened, then Jesus is turning to you. This is the only place, the exception to this rule. He turns to his disciples and what does he say? The harvest. I like it in the King James. That's why I put it in the King James there. Because I think King James translated more accurately than most other translations. Harvest truly is plenteous. But laborers are few. What do we mean by Harvest. See, we live in such a society, we have lost the meaning of the word harvest. Kindergarten teacher asked her students, where does milk come from? One smart kid stood up immediately and said, refrigerator. <laughs> That's the world we, in which we live, right? We don't know what harvest is. But Jesus' audience knew what harvest is. Harvest is the most precious thing for them. One failure of a harvest would mean death, starvation, because they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have frozen food. And they needed to get the harvest in. And harvest had to be taken in in time. There is so much meaning in that one word. We don't have time this morning to expound on it. It's precious and time sensitive. That was the expression that Jesus, that was the one expression Jesus could use to communicate the value of human soul, which he later on does in Matthew 16, 26, comparing a human to a, the whole creation. What shall it profit a person if he gains the whole world and loses one's soul? Again, I ask you this morning, have you received that assurance of salvation? If not, please call on him. What do you lose?
nothing to lose. Pascal said it beautifully. The French philosopher and mathematician Pascal said it most beautifully. Even if there is only a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of chance that the gospel is true. Say there is only one in one trillion chance that the gospel is true. And I choose to believe it. What do I lose? Nothing. What do I lose? By living a clean life. By not wasting my money on drugs or prostitutes. What do I lose? By taking care of my children, by loving my wife. What do I lose? But on the other hand, if only one in trillion chance is there, and it is true, if I choose not to believe this, what do I lose? Everything. Everything. So if you're a wise man, if you're a wise woman, you will choose to believe. Because everything depends on that. So, if we have believed, then we are people who believe in the preciousness of human soul. Only human beings are eternal. In America, they deceive you. Companies deceive you by telling you, diamonds are forever. Oh, no, 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 no. They just want your money. That's why they say that. Diamonds are not forever. Nothing material is forever. Well, science used to laugh at that teaching, you know. Science used to teach matter is eternal until something happened in a place called Nagasaki. Now, no scientist will tell you matter is eternal. Everything we see will perish. But you are precious. You are eternal. Your neighbor is eternal. Your coworker is eternal. Do you value the preciousness of harvest? The Lord used this text, as I already said, in 1984, to reaffirm our call. We were traveling through North India with our children. And the Lord spoke to us, reminded us again and again. Our call is not for our life in Southern California. It is to do something because people are precious. And our call is to India, a country of, at that time, 800 million people. I did something. I hope I have time to share with you. Uh, I, somebody told me, take all the time you want in the second service. There is. <laughs> I wanted to escape from this call. So I still have that Bible with me. I sat down. I was an executive, as I told you, with World Vision. And I sat down in my office one day, 800 million people. I said, Lord, what's the use in my going to India? Even if I go to India, preach to a thousand different people a day. Do you have any idea how long it will take to reach 800 million? The harvest is plenteous. That's the point. You know, it shocked me when I found out. Do you know how long it will take? to reach 800 million people if you preach to a thousand different people a day, don't take a single day's break? Any guess? Well, let me tell you, it will take you only 2,191.78 years. Check me out. Prove me wrong. Harvest is plenteous. Laborers are few. So what do we do? What do we do? In India, we have 
4,693 nations. Biblical word, nations. Koine Greek word is Athena. All the Indian languages translated with the word Jati. My professor of missions, Dr. Donald McGavery, often used to tell, he was a missionary in India, 40 plus years, he often used to tell, that's the best translation of the word Athena. Unfortunately, English translation nations did mean it when the translation was done originally in the 13th century, but now nations mean country in, in, in English. Nation of Canada, nation of Mexico, that's not what the Bible means by it. It's Athena, ethnic group. Ethnic group or people group. 4,693 of them just in India. Altogether in the world, 21,000. Let me tell you a secret about every single one of them. Every single one of them think they are the best in the world. Now don't you tell me you don't think that about your ethnic group. We all do. And we should be proud about our... I'm so proud I'm a St. Thomas Christian, you know. So I must baptize my great-grandfather. Don't look down upon others. I often say it like this. If you're a racist, please don't go to heaven. You won't like it there. You won't like it there. Why? Because my Jesus died for all. And this book tells me, Revelation 5 tells me, that every ethnic group will be there. But today that is not a reality. If you will go to joshuaproject.net. By the way, I recommend that. If you have a smartphone, go to joshuaproject.net, download the Unreached People Group of the Day app. It will help you to learn about all the Unreached People Groups of the world. There are thousands of them. My country of India alone. If we can put up the next slide, Brother Mitch, we have 90 odd languages. Languages, not dialects, languages. Still in India, without one page of the Bible translated. By the way, in our seminary, we have a school of Bible translation in partnership with Wilkerson, trying to reach the remaining languages. Nearly 2,000 ethna, according to joshuaproject.net, nearly 2,000 nations, ethna in India, don't have a church of their own. I didn't know these things. I grew up in church. Nobody told me this. I had to study and learn all these things. You see, this is where Jesus came. He came for all and gave us the commission to go and make disciples of all. Athena, Athena, Athena. Every time you read that word nation, please remember it is Athena. It is not political countries, it is ethnic groups. And if we don't do it, who will do it? If that was the question God raised us. So God gave us grace, let me quickly sum up, to go to the northern part. We are from south, I told you. We are southerners. We don't talk like them, but we are southerners. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at my silly jokes. It will keep you awake. And the northerners, as soon as we open our mouth, the northerners will know we are South Indians. Most northerners look down upon South Indians, especially Christians. You think racism is just a problem in America? I have a bridge to sell. I think this is the least racist country that I have experienced. I have lived, I came to this country 50 years ago and we lived here and worked here. 
racism is everywhere. Okay, it's not a unique American phenomenon like some people are trying to teach today. No, that's another topic. I won't go there. <laughs> it would take me too long. Well, Lord send us to North India. In North India, they do look, upon, look down upon South India. We call, they call us Madrasis. That's what they call us. Madrasis, because Madras used to be the largest city in South India. Today it is called Chennai. So they, North Indians all think we all come from Madras. They call us Madrasis. Well, that's another story. God sent us to North India. Gave us, miraculously gave, you can put up those pictures, Brother Mitch. Miraculously gave us a spectacular spot. Right at the foothills of the beautiful Himalaya mountains. Did you notice how I pronounced it? Well, you can mispronounce one Indian word. We mispronounce enough English words. But if you want to pronounce it right, it is not Himalaya, it is Himalaya. Because it has a meaning. It changes. The meaning changes when you shorten the A. Would you like to know the meaning of Himalaya? Do I have three hours, Pastor Tommy? <laughs> Himalaya made up of two words. Here's a quick lesson. At least learn something because you came to church today, right? It's made up of two words. First word is Himam, which means snow. Alem, with a long A, Alem means house. House of snow. That's what it means. And when you shorten it, meaning changes. Himam still remains snow. Alem is ocean. It becomes ocean of snow. Well, you can't call it ocean of snow because it is. But if you want to pronounce it right, Himalaya. Well, that's another footnote. God gave us the land and people like you, churches like you, stood with us. We started with just a few students. Now we have become the largest fully accredited theological seminary in North India with over 3,000 graduates. A number of people from this congregation have been there, Terry and Don have been there a number of times and we would love for you to come. Next time they come, come with them. For God's glory. 3,000 graduates, but what is it? for 1.3 billion people. So we want to train more, that's our mission. Our mission, our goal is make disciples of all. Athena, Athena, please learn that word. Athena, all jati. And it is happening, our, our graduates have now gone and planted hundreds of churches. Our vision was only for India. But two months ago, I preached in a church in Queens, New York planted by one of our graduates. Do you want to hear the name of the church? And when you hear the name of the church, you will know Punjabi Bethlehem Church. Punjabi. I know you guys pronounce Punjabi. I don't have time to correct all your mispronunciations today. <laughs> Forgive me for laughing. You know, just making it fun, that's all. Don't, don't get offended at me. One of our graduates. And I was so blessed to see a good-sized congregation. And he told me 70% of his believers, or the believers in the church, are former Hindus or Sikhs. Punjabis, mostly Sikhs, the people who wear turban, and even some Muslims. Wonderful graduate. We have a graduate now, a missionary in Tanzania. Hallelujah. A missionary in Cambodia. Hallelujah. Our mission was just for India, but God is honoring the graduates are. Two weeks ago, I preached in West Virginia, pastored by 
a church pastored by two of our graduates. What, what's the name of the place? I all, Morgantown, West Virginia. So, of course, North India is our primary mission field. Nepal, Myanmar, number of places. So, what are we to do? What are, you will ask, well, George, what am I to do? I live here in Indiana. What am I to do? Well, the Lord has commanded us. It is Matthew 9, 38 is a command. It's an imperative, grammatically speaking. Imperative mood. It's not Jesus is saying, okay, do it once in a month during Mission Sunday. No. He's saying, pray ye therefore. Pray ye therefore. That's the solution to the problem. Because when we pray, God acts. When we pray, God will move. I don't know why he has instituted that. I wish he would just do it. <laughs> but he has chosen to make you and I partners of his work. His co-workers. He has chosen to make us frail human beings, his co-workers. I don't understand why. But that's his will. That is his pleasure. Are you obedient to him? Are we praying for people? Because people are eternal. People are eternal. Every human being is eternal if this is the word of God. They will either spend eternity with God or away from God. And you have a role to play in it. I have a role to play in it. Are you praying for your unsaved relatives? Are you praying for your unsaved neighbors? Brothers and sisters, I'm not saying this to make anybody feel guilty. But often in our busyness, in our busy life, we forget this priority that God has given us. We pray for our personal needs. Have you noticed how he taught us to pray? What we normally call the Lord's Prayer, which ought to be called the Disciples' Prayer. Have you noticed how he taught us to pray? What the three top priorities in, those, in that prayer is? Our Father, who art in heaven. Number one, hallowed be thy name. Number one priority. Number two, Thy kingdom come. Number three, thy will be done on earth as it is in, thy will be done in Castleton, in Carmel, in Indianapolis, in Indiana, in the United States, in India. Then comes, give us this day our daily bread. So we are not saying you ought not to pray for our personal needs. But a disciple's prayer is different from people who are not disciples. Their prayers are always self-centered. Give me this, give me that. But not a disciple's. The Lord taught this great truth in Matthew 6.33, which all of you know by heart when, when he told us, seek ye, seek ye, Seek ye first. What? 
You see, what the world seeks first is their self-centered goals. That's where you're different. That's where I'm different. I'm not like the worldly person. Their ambition is always self-centered. But the ambition of a disciple is always Christ-centered. That's the critical difference between a disciple and a person who is not a disciple. A disciple's ambition is always Christ-centered. God-centered. And therefore we pray, Lord, send forth workers into the harvest field. Your harvest field. The harvest is his. Every human belongs to him. We cannot allow the devil to steal them. Therefore, we must pray. And then once you pray, God will show you the rest. He will show you how to share the gospel. He will show you how to give generously. And he will show you some of us to go. As Pastor Nate always says, 95% of us are not called to go. 5% are called to go, like us. But the 95% are critical. They're critical. Unless you stand behind us, we cannot go. We cannot do what God has called us to do. So will you pray with us? Will you close our eyes? And will you seek God's will? How? What do I need to do? Number one, I must pray. Because that's a command in Matthew 9, 38. It's a command. It's an imperative. Pray ye therefore to the Lord of the harvest. And once we start praying, like we did, my wife and I did, then he showed us what we needed to do. And then he gives us grace to obey what he shows us. So will you make a commitment today and say to the Lord, Lord, give me grace to take Matthew 9.38 seriously in my life. Help me to pray. And as I pray, show me what to do next. Father God, I thank you for these dear brothers and sisters who heard your word. Lord, we know it is your heartbeat. You came for one purpose, to seek and to save that which is lost. And so many of our brothers and sisters all across the globe are still lost without hearing about you, without knowing that there is a God who loves them, who died for them. Help us, O oh Lord, to cry out for them. Help us, O oh Lord, to pray for our neighbors, our colleagues, and the world that is coming to us. So many Athena are here in Indianapolis. Help us, O oh Lord, to reach out to them and then to the far ends of the earth. Thank you for speaking to us. We surrender ourselves to you and we ask for your blessings upon every person who heard your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.